This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's up, Midas, Mighty? What's up, Popokians? What's up, Legal AFers and possibly Mycelicians? Welcome to the Midas Touch Legal AF podcast. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it is Sunday, it is Legal AF. Ben Micellis and Michael Popak breaking down for you all the legal issues. As we record this episode, today we are recording on September 11th. Our hearts go out to everybody who lost their lives, to all of the family members who lost loved ones on that date that we will never forget. We are with you. I, I remember just briefly Popak sharing my own story of growing up in Long Island, New York. I was a junior in high school at the time. I think we all remember where we were. I remember the classroom I was in. I remember the principal calling names over the loudspeaker of individuals who had loved ones who worked in or around the tower. And you would hear the names of people being called and people didn't know if that was a father or a mother or an uncle or someone who had potentially lost their lives. You know, my father was working in the city then. Fortunately, he was fine, but wasn't able to hear from him from quite some time because lots of the cell service was down at that time. A day I will never forget that forever changed history and a day that we can never forget as a country. Yeah, we, we can't move past that day. And as people may know, my, I have a personal connection. I worked at Cantor Fitzgerald um, many years after the events of 9-11, but worked with people that were impacted directly and personally and emotionally by, by 9-11. Um, 658 employees of Cantor Fitzgerald, who was the hardest hit company, were lost in a five-minute span 20 years ago. And there's not a day that goes by that that company doesn't think about those people, the legacy, and the events of 9-11. I was coming out of a, of a separate event last night that happened to be near ground zero. And I just was struck by the twin beams of light that are used as a uh, commemoration, a memorial. And uh, <clears throat> I think they did it last year, but frankly, you know, I really wasn't on the street much last year because of the pandemic, but I got to see it with a group of other people. And, you know, it, it is a moving and awe-inspiring celebration and commemoration of people that are lost. 3,000 people, 3,000 Americans, and others died 
on 9-11 20 years ago. Somebody tweeted, I'll just leave it at this. Somebody tweeted in our, in our feed. Um, there's so much other loss in, in the world, including with, with COVID. Can't we move past 9-11? And I thought that was a heartless, senseless posting. And the answer to that is no. And we should never forget what happened that day and the consequences of what happened to that day to impact our lives. So Ben, thanks for bringing that up today. I'm, you know, I'm sorry to start the podcast on a dour moment, but I don't think we had any other choice given the day that we're recording the podcast. Correct. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be focused on the travesties that are currently taking place. And of course, Legal AF, the Midas Touch podcast, other media, um, our followers, our supporters, you know, we all should definitely talk about and hold people accountable for the travesty that's going on right now and the mishandling, the disinfo that, ar- that arose out of the Trump administration, you know, in the pandemic and so much other horrible things that are arising from the rise of this GQP fascist movement. But we must always reflect on other moments as well um, yeah. in history. And so talking about the current news, the current legal news, let's get into it. And let's start by talking about the FBI seizing the phone of someone named Kelly Sorrell. She was identified or is identified as a oath keeper lawyer. This is in connection with the FBI's seditious conspiracy investigation under 18 U.S. Code 2384, 2384 is a seditious conspiracy charge. As many people may recall, even though Kelly Sorrell is identified in many articles and media as as the Oath Keeper lawyer, the role that she had in the January 6th insurrection Popak was kind of more of like public relations. She was a speaker. She uh, was very outspoken about spreading the big lie. She She, was there. She she was there at the Capitol on Jan 6th. And she was basically serving as the media liaison um, uh, on behalf of the Oath Keepers. And so her phone was seized by the FBI you know, she's, you know, expressed a great degree of outrage that her information's being called through by law enforcement. I think it's worth reflecting on certain different obligations that arise when you're dealing with executing search warrants on a lawyer um, as opposed to, you know, just somebody else. But here, Popak, there's something slightly different because, yes, she is a lawyer, but that doesn't mean you can't execute search warrants. We've seen that with Rudy Giuliani. If you are actually engaged in the crime and if the FBI has good faith basis or law enforcement has good faith basis to get a warrant from a magistrate. Um, But here also we have Kelly Sorrell also kind of serving a different function, which just because you wear the lawyer hat doesn't make you a lawyer for all purposes. For, for those that are listening to the podcast, he, Ben is literally wearing a lawyer hat. <laughs> I'm wearing a Georgetown law hat that I just tapped, but she was also not necessarily functioning as a lawyer. What do you think about this, Popeye? 
Yeah, it's it's um, I'm, ho- I'm hoping I'm never going to hear about Kelly Sorrell again unless she's prosecuted for this uh, uh, this fantastic crime that I hope more and more of the Jan six insurrectionists are charged with, which is, as you mentioned, seditious conspiracy. And to pull a mycelium for a minute to define it, it is when two or more people conspire to overthrow, put down, destroy by force or opposed by force the U.S. government. And that is what the leaders of the insurrection, I hope, are going to ultimately be charged with, including the founder of of the Oath Keepers, who is um, Stuart Rhodes, who she is. I don't know if she's more than the lawyer, but she certainly identified herself as the lawyer for Stuart Rhodes. And I'm going to refer our followers and listeners to a very good database that's being maintained by George Washington University, uh, the program on extremism. And they have a database, which is at extremism.gwu.edu, where they are monitoring each of the 600 cases closely um, that have been brought, the charges that have been brought against each of the 600 so far insurrectionists. And the, and the interesting head scratcher, and I wanna get your opinion on this, is that not one of the 600 yet has been charged with seditious conspiracy. But what you want to talk a little bit about superseding indictments and what do you think may be coming down the line with this particular subpoena being the signal? Yeah. So, you know, I was recently on a podcast. I'll plug it. We're also at Midas Touch Executive Producers, um, the Michael Cohen Mea Culpa podcast. And Cohen was very disappointed in Merrick Garland. You know, and I think a lot of people, a lot of our um, supporters and followers and listeners are saying, when is Merrick Garland going to take action? Why isn't he charging people with sedition? You know, when I said Merrick Garland, though, is I, I agree to some extent. I would like to see, I think, a lot more aggressive action just because, you know, you just want to see the you just want to see it visually that things are getting done and people are being held accountable. But Merrick Garland is very methodical. You need to dot all your I's and cross all your T's because in cases like this, even typographical errors that go into complaints can lead to mistrials and not actually getting the yeah. results that you want. So what you do in these cases, you prioritize who are the people we really want to make example of, who are people that we want to make sure we hold accountable, but gather information from. And as you say, in a superseding indictment, literally meaning an indictment which supersedes an amendment, if you will, to an existing uh, indictment, you can add additional charges as information becomes available. And so the process that we see taking place here in this case is a information gathering process, the same way we've talked about discovery in civil settings. There's discovery in criminal settings that are far more robust that you literally can get warrants and take people's stuff um, and take their phones in this case, or take their hard drives and go through it. But I think what you're seeing here is the preparation of that, that will be happening in the next six months. Yeah, I totally agree with you. We're ready for a Popakian prediction. I think this is a signal that at the very top in doing the triage that you talked about, where they're going through, they're separating the really bad guys and then the bad guys and then the okay bad guys, the ones at the very top, like the Oath Keeper founder who who organized 
and is found to have organized on social media and all of these dark web communication platforms prior to and the day of and during uh, planning, planning and participating in and managing the insurrection, if you will. Those are the people that are, that are going to ultimately be charged with some sort of conspiracy or seditious conspiracy, which really came out of the restoration period and civil war against these individuals. So I agree, we got to be patient here a little bit with, with Merrick Garland. And they are dotting their I's and crossing their T's. I also read in doing the research for this particular issue that the then acting U.S. attorney for Washington, who was doing under Trump, if you will, who was doing the initial prosecutions and investigations, he got chastised professionally and ethically because he went on some talk show and said he thought conspiracy was definitely going to be charged. And listen, he just that's just a Freudian slip. They are going to charge it. It just he's not allowed to say it in advance as if he's prejudging the evidence that's being developed. And and that guy actually got his knuckles wrapped for having said that. So Look, I think we people that are really, really interested in this, there's a database that GW is 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 handling. You and I will update this as it goes along. But I'd be shocked that if in the next three to six months, there's not a handful of charges at the very top, the apex of this conspiracy, charges of seditious conspiracy and other crimes that put people away for life. One thing to add to the legal lexicon of our listeners and viewers is a concept called a privilege review team or a taint team that's within the DOJ. When uh, search warrants are served on someone who may hold a privilege with uh, potential clients, in this case, an attorney-client privilege, what's supposed to happen, and I say supposed to because lots of criminal defense lawyers are very look very suspiciously at the process, but that a separate team within the DOJ, or even in many cases, an outside independent party appointed by the judge, a referee is what it's sometimes called, you know, will review the records to determine if certain documents are subject to an attorney client privilege or a privilege claim that the government can't review um, in the context of their um, investigation efforts. And so here, I think it will depend the utilization of a taint team, depending on if she was acting in the course yeah. and scope of her employment. And, and just to leave it at this, remember, there's a federal magistrate who reviewed the search warrant application and the charges in there, including the seditious conspiracy charge or potential charge, and said, yeah, this lawyer's cell phone is going over to the government. I think they've met their burden. So there's a multiple gatekeepers. There's the DOJ gatekeepers at the taint team level that you mentioned. And then there's the ultimate one, which is a federal judge who is looking over these things to make sure, you know, and you contrast that with what Kellyanne tweeted, is that her name? Kellyanne, Kelly, another Kellyanne. Kellyanne tweeted, and I'm not making this up, and I want to say it. She said, um, this should not have happened to me because it was, quote, unethical as shit. That's the defense. <laughs> I'm not sure if that is going to be a good defense or something that I would ever put in my legal papers, papers <laughs> but what else can we expect for our <laughs> someone who's affiliated with an organization that is a hateful white supremacist group that supports insurrection, switching gears, Popak, to the executive orders by President Biden, these vaccine requirement executive orders. I want to talk briefly about these vaccine requirements in the two executive orders. 
the reaction to it, the predictable reaction to it by your crazy GQP governors and officials who want children to die. Let's be blunt about it. That's what they want. They want to kill their populations. They want to kill children. They don't give a shit about people's lives. And then I want to talk about the legal precedents. And ultimately, Popak, I think you and I agree, this is something that will make its way to through the federal court system. These GQP governors are likely going to sue, and it is an issue that will likely reach the Supreme Court at some point in time. But so far, the update is President Joe Biden this past week issued two executive orders mandating vaccines for federal workers and contractors and announced new requirements for large employers and healthcare providers that he said would affect around 100 million workers, which is more than two thirds of the U.S. workforce. So, Popak, with respect to federal workers and federal contractors, the president can basically make these requirements a firm requirement um, with respect to private employers that have a hundred or more workers that are that are within the workforce. Those have either a vaccine requirement or a weekly testing requirement. Uh, The response from GQP governors, the usual suspects like South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem talks about how this is about freedom and the government's overstepping our authority. We're going to take action. You have Brian Kemp of Georgia saying, I will pursue every legal option available to stay in the state of Georgia to stop this blatantly unlawful overreach by the Biden administration. (sighs) And then we have Arizona Governor Doug Ducey issuing a statement saying that this is a dictatorial approach. It is wrong. It is un-American, is what Governor Ducey said. Let's break down the law, Popak. All right. Let's let's start it this way. Um, Let's put it in the most simple terms. You don't have the right to spread disease at the expense of your fellow American. And these governors who are allowing, let's just call it what it is, allowing their fellow citizens and their electorate to spread disease because they're pandering in order to get reelected is really unethical, disgusting, and immoral. That's that's where we start. In terms of the laws themselves, I'm gonna flip it around. We talked about the power of the federal government through administrative agencies to, in the case of the eviction ban, um, to issue regulations. And the problem with the eviction ban, as we found out through the Supreme Court, and you and I predicted, was that the agency that was given the authority or delegated the authority by the federal government, by Biden administration, was the CDC. And the problem is the CDC doesn't really have on its books in terms of laws or regulations from which it can draw from a statute that sort of fits eviction ban. It has infestation. It has public health crisis. It has, you know, extermination. It doesn't have rent eviction bans. OSHA does. OSHA has the power in the area of health and welfare of workers to regulate in that area, both because it involves interstate commerce, which is where the federal power is often often uh, arise. And we're going to talk about that even in the context of the new case filed by the Department of Justice against the Texas abortion ban. But so you start with 
Does it affect interstate commerce? It does. Is there an agency in the federal government that regulates in the area of worker safety and health? There is. What is it called? OSHA. Great. And then you look on the books of OSHA and you say, are there is there power that's been delegated by the federal government, by Congress to OSHA in the area of public health and safety? There is. So he I think he stands on firmly solid ground that even this Supreme Court will ultimately have to uphold to allow OSHA to regulate in the area of large companies, interstate commerce and public health and issue these vaccine requirements. Um, and yes, for votes, for pandering to their electorate so that they get reelected, um, they're, they're, the governors of these various states are going to say, we're going to challenge it. They, they know in their hearts, A, they're going to lose and B, they're killing their electorate. Popak, let's go back to 1905, can we? Let's go back to 1905. As long as you don't say I was there. You were not there in 1905, <laughs> as far as as far as I know. Right. Um, Justice <laughs> Justice Marshall Harlan writing for the Supreme Court at that time. Justice Harlan was a former Kentucky attorney general, just to give you context on his background before um, going to the Supreme Court, wrote an opinion in a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And the Jacobson and Massachusetts case related to the smallpox outbreak and certain individuals in this case, I think it was a preacher who had moved yeah. here from Sweden, Sweden, um, who basically said, I don't want to get vaccinated. Um, and, and, and wait, before you move on, smallpox had ravished the entire planet. Millions at by that point in 1904, 1905, millions and millions of people had died from smallpox. And the ruling very clearly said that the vaccine requirements in this case, I believe the vaccine requirement was a Massachusetts kind of state requirement, but that the vaccine requirements were allowed in this specific case. Um, let me read for you one of the central parts of this order in 1905. Quote, there is, of course, a sphere within which the individual may assert the supremacy of his own will and rightfully dispute the authority of any human government, Harlan wrote. But it is equally true that in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of the individual in respect of his liberty may at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint to be enforced by reasonable regulations as the safety of the general public may demand. I just want to pause there and truly <laughs> reflect the beauty of that statement. There's a lot to unpack there, right? There is the constitutional promise, Popak, that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's built into the Constitution. That's at the core of the Constitution. But as Justice Harlan so eloquently puts in this opinion, it is equally true that in a well-ordered society charged with the duty of others that we have to, as individuals, also respect the liberty of the country and the ability of people to live. It's one of those things where there's beauty in the law. 
There's yeah. beauty in that statement. But Popak, let me ask you this. Do you think that that precedent, do you think that that statement will be embraced by this current Supreme Court or will they lean on COVID as something different or somehow distinguishable from smallpox? I, I, I would hope that the precedent of, of Jacobson versus Massachusetts is the foundation upon which the, even this Supreme Court rules that mandatory vaccination is a power under the Constitution that states and federal government can um, can use. The nuance here is that it's the federal government versus individual states. I don't think matters. I think if we're doing, uh, and by the way, if we're doing dueling guitars, there was another great quote in there that I liked, uh, which you and I have, have done versions of, done riffs on without really thinking about it for the last four or five podcasts. One person's liberty can't deprive another of his. And you're depriving your fellow citizen of his or her liberty because they have the liberty to be free from infectious disease that you're spreading because of what you consider to be your liberty. And that was put also, I mean, I, I love reading, first of all, Harlan was known for those that are kind of groupies about the Supreme Court, go back in time. Not only was he named for the first, really the first chief justice of the United States, John Marshall, but he himself was known as an irascible member of the court who often wrote piercing dissents. He wasn't often in the majority. He was here, but he wrote these amazing, eloquent dissents that now have been cited in, in, in other cases. The Supreme Court today is going to have to is going to have to run away from this precedent, because if you if you read closely the ruling the underlying briefing that was done even as far back in 1905, almost the exact same arguments that the anti-vax movement, which these governors are now the appointed heads of, their arguments are embedded and embodied in the arguments that were raised in 1905 and rejected. We have standing precedent of the Supreme Court on the issue of mandatory vaccination. I don't know what the problem is with these governors. To have DeSantis, for instance, a former U.S. attorney, an attorney say that there is no constitutional precedent and this is an unconstitutional power grab by the president of the United States just shows how woeful he was as a lawyer. There's a great book that I would recommend to all Papakians and legal AFers called The Great Dissenter by Peter S. Canellos. Who, write, who writes about Justice Harlan and some of his great dissents. And also, if anyone wants to learn more about the case that we just discussed and the precedents surrounding vaccine requirements, there's a great article on Politico that Peter Canellos wrote, which goes into more detail uh, about that case. That was like our legal AF book club. I, the, legal, the legal AF book club is going <laughs> to be lit. Let me take yeah. us from 1905. Let me take us back to the current moment. Let's go to Fulton County, Georgia, Popak, where the criminal investigation into Trump. You remember that call, Popak? Uh, oh, to yeah. Ralphusburg, you know, find the Can't votes. Can't we just find, find some votes? votes? Find the votes. Can't we just find the votes so I can win Georgia? It was just looking back. It was just one horror shit show over, you know, after another. And, you know, each day 
today to seeing these GQP governors with their response to the vaccine mandates and just the most basic things. The the bottom has completely dropped and the yeah. depths of depravity really have but, no depths and nothing surprises us. But going they, back they, to or wait, wait, or wait, as I like to say, they hit rock bottom and they're and they're now starting to dig. But look, before you move, timeline, let's give it for our listeners and followers. January 2nd, Trump makes the phone call to Raffensperger, the secretary of state of Georgia, Jan 2. Four days later, Jan 6, the attack on the Capitol. Okay, go ahead. And I was just going to also reflect that one of the reasons that the GQP probably loves fracking so much is because <laughs> they're involved in fracking down to new depths of depravity. Just yes. just, just put that out there. But Popak, we hear that there is a criminal investigation that is underway. We hear that there are steps being taken to interview Brad Raffensperger. Um, Raffensperger, the secretary of state, confirmed to the Daily Beast this past week that Fulton County investigators have asked for documents. They're talking to people within the office. Raffensperger says that their office is cooperating. Raffensperger, by the way, is you know, no fan of Donald Trump. But nonetheless, these GQPers are just so weird sometimes, Popak, because you have people like Donald Trump who literally destroy their lives. But then you basically ask him and we've had some, you know, people on the podcast who, you know, seem to be kind of to the extent there are some fair minded Republicans who may not fully be enraptured in that GQP label who Donald Trump has literally attacked their family. And then you ask him a question like, well, would you vote for him again? And they're like, well, you know, it's an interesting question. I'd have to. It's like, how could that not just be? I'm never going to vote well, for the guy who literally destroyed my life well, and well, interfered about, with our elections. Well, how about the backflips that McCarthy has done where uh, where he stood the day after the Jan 6th insurrection and said that Trump was responsible, McConnell, the same thing. And then three days after that, he was he was kissing Trump's butt at uh, at Mar-a-Lago in Florida. Totally. Well, look, Kevin McCarthy, though, is a complete uh, is just he's a pathological complete, and he's, he's, a, yeah, pathological he's a complete liar. another clown. But the yeah. wild piece is when I speak to like people who are like really smart, they go and they basically talk about how Trump is a criminal, how everything he did is unlawful, and they break it down so articulately. And I just throw out the question to him. I go, well, would you vote for him? And they go, well, you know, I need a <laughs> it's really. But Popak, what do you think is going on here? Do you think that there yeah. is going to be yeah. more than just an investigation? Is there going to be criminal charges? Yeah. And we still have uh, for our listeners and followers just to if, who are scoring at home, New York, state and federal, Eastern District, Southern District of New York, New York Attorney General, all continuing to investigate. They've already indicted two in the Trump organization. They've indicted the Trump organization. Now you've got Fulton County, Georgia, which is where Atlanta is. And you've got Fannie Willis, who's the district attorney there. She's not only doing the investigation herself as to whether the election was improperly interfered with, from the phone call from Trump to Raffensperger. And we know Raffensperger has been interviewed in the media and he's he he has testified that he I think under oath as well in an investigation that he believes he was being coerced and threatened and extorted by Trump uh, during that phone call. And that's the big that, that's the beginning. But it's not just Trump 
and and the DA in Fulton County, she's also cooperating, the media reports, with the federal investigators about Jan 6th. So there's a linkage there between the DA in Georgia and the federal government prosecuting the case. And I've also read and researched that Lindsey Graham may be caught up in this because of phone calls that he made back to Georgia and statements that he made. And you're going to love this because I think Midas Touch had an amazing viral video about this. Rudy Giuliani, the day I think that he was passing gas and and dripping hair dye duty, was Rudy. when he was r- r- duty when he was in the state legislature of Georgia giving testimony and and trying to make a case that the that the election was fraudulent. So they may all get I mean, Rudy's I mean, every day there's a new like Rudy Giuliani possible indictment. So we're going to monitor this closely. We'll see how far it's going to progress. But I think the D.A. is digging in and we'll see in the next three, six months if there's an actual indictment that comes out of it. Popokian prediction. I think that there, yes, between New York and Georgia, I I stand on my prediction. There will be a Trump indictment. Um, I was hoping in 2021 I might have to push it to the first quarter of 2022. Updates. We have <laughs> updates. Popokian. I'm not going to fully leave you off the hook there because you're kind of moving the goalposts a little bit. You're kind of hedging on New York versus you. I agree with you. There's going to be an indictment, but you did not answer the question directly. <laughs> so you get a yellow card. That's such a proper use of the Popokian yellow card for all of the viewers. This is when Popokian does something that is worthy of a penalty right there. Not answering the question directly is a valid use of the Popokian yellow card. As you know, I say that, I just as I say that, Michael, and I'm going to use Michael if, if, okay, if I may for a second. <laughs> just think of <laughs> there are so many people, the vast majority of polling people love when I do Popokian, but there are some real <laughs> haters of it. I think out it's there. the same guy. <laughs> no, the same no, person. No. Michael, there are some emails that I don't uh, even uh, share with you uh, okay. because they strike at my heart because I'm just trying to have a little fun here also as we go through some heavy legal topics. But Michael Popok, there are some people who don't like when I repeat Popokian over and over again. But update. I, I might be one of them. I mean, but but let me also you're doing your yellow card. I'm going to show I'm going to show those that are watching. Don't show them. You know, yes. I'll tell you why. No, don't show them. And I'm explaining to you why. I'll do it backwards. You, yeah, do it backwards. <laughs> and right. I'll, I'll tell them at the end of it why not to show them. It's a Vegas. <laughs> it's a Vegas trick. And with the Vegas. All right. That's a good point. But I will say we spent an inordinate amount of time on Popokians and yellow cards. Yet I get grief that this show sometimes goes long. Updates. We have updates. (laughs) We have updates. Okay, Popak, the first update that I want to give is on SB8, the patently unconstitutional under existing constitutional precedent, the Texas handmaid's bounty law that goes after childbearing persons that attacks women that turns uh, neighbors into bounty hunters to report individuals who are seeking abortions one of the most heinous heinous laws 
um, the week began or last week began when this law was announced. Merrick Garland said that he was going to be taking action. Um, he stated, he issued a statement shortly thereafter saying the Department of Justice would, quote, protect those seeking to obtain or provide re reproductive health services under the federal law known as the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances or FACE Act. Um, the DOJ followed up with a lawsuit filed in the Western District of Texas, Austin Division. Why, you ask, was it filed there? That's where the law was passed. Jurisdiction, jurisdiction. You know, they would they, they sue where the law exists in Texas. Um, this is filed in the federal court. This is a district court case because it relates to federal issues. And here, the supremacy clause, the idea that a state can't pass laws that are counter to what the Constitution provides. And indeed, Popak, the lawsuit states from the outset, this is what the injunction, the injunction means that the DOJ is seeking to stop this from happening and declaratory relief asking the court to declare that this law is unconstitutional. Court, declare this law, SB8 is unconstitutional, and stop it. The case opens up, the lawsuit begins by saying, it is settled constitutional law that a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability, citing Planned, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, the case we discussed last week, the 1992 case, Accord Roe v. Wade, meaning that that then that case mentions Roe v. Wade. Also another mention to Roe v. Wade, the initial case as Popak um, discussed that established this constitutional right to privacy and the right here um, for a woman's choice constitutionally. Um, and this is what the lawsuit says. But Texas has done just that. It has enacted a statute banning nearly all abortions in the state after six weeks, months before a pregnancy is viable. It goes on to say Texas enacted SB8 in open defiance of the Constitution. The statute prohibits pre-viability abortions, even in cases of rape, sexual abuse or incense. It also prohibits any effort to aid or indeed any intent to aid doctors who provide pre-viability abortions or the women who exercise their right to seek one. Popak, before you breaking this down a little more, I do want to tell our listeners, you know, this is the way lawyers draft complaints is very important. You do not bury the lead in a lawsuit and going out and saying this is patently unconstitutional and here's why not talking about that in paragraphs you know 15 or 16 in the preliminary statement be very preliminary and say what this case is about popak i i'm i have a big love and big heart for this merrick garland filed department of justice you not united states of america versus the state of texas it is exactly what should have been filed at the exact right moment. You and I disagreed a little bit a couple of podcasts ago about 
uh, coming uh, Merrick Garland coming out of the box while this was being drafted behind the scenes saying, you know, there's a there's a federal law that people can't stop other people from crossing the threshold of a, an abortion clinic. And if that happens, we're going to enforce it. I, I thought that was like, well, that, that's fine, but that's not going to get us to the heart of the constitutional matter and the open defiance, to quote the complaint that Texas is, is exhibiting by SB8. But here we have it front and center first paragraph of the complaint, which was as heavy on law and citations as any brief that I've ever seen, just to make it clear for our podcast listeners and followers and watchers tonight. Complaints are generally allegations that are drafted, factual allegations that are drafted, attached to law that supports the counts or the claims in the back of the complaint. Occasionally, you'll cite a case here and there. But when you're this is more in the in the form of a brief a complaint. It's a complaint that cites every prevailing Supreme Court precedent for a woman's right to choose, coupled with the federal government's right and the preemptive right and the supremacy right of the federal government and the U.S. government over states. Front and center, citation, chapter and verse. So it's almost like they're opening brief in the appeal as well. So there's no guessing where the federal government is. And right as you said, Ben, the foundation for this lawsuit are are basically three cases of the U.S. Supreme Court precedent on the books, well-established and settled, that establish once and for all a woman's right to choose. Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, Roe versus Wade in 1973, and Whole Women's Health versus Hellstat in 2016, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still on the court. And taken together, it gives the woman that right pre-viability. Now, there's a fight over what is viability. And a lot of these states like Texas, Tennessee, which we'll talk about in a minute, Alabama and different Mississippi, which will be up in the docket for the Supreme Court in October, try to do what's called heart heartbeat cases, heartbeat statutes, where as soon as there's a fetal heartbeat, whatever that means, that's when the woman's right to abortion stops. SB8 tried to do an end run around the heartbeat issues, the medical issues, by saying, to remind our listeners, oh, the state's not doing anything. Oh, we're not enforcing the, the anti-abortion statute. Private citizens are going to do it. But they went too far, thank God, and it gave Merrick Garland's Department of Justice a way to argue very, very creatively. Did you notice, Ben, who, which department and division of the Department of Justice signed that brief? Did you see that? Who did it, Popak? It's the federal programs branch of the Department of Justice, a branch that I, did, uh, that I didn't even know existed. And what the federal program lawyers for the Department of Justice do all day long is make sure that federal programs whether the Department of, of Defense programs, whether they're a refugee resettlement, Medicare, Medicaid, the Department of Education, whatever federal program is out there is not violated um, and bring civil suits related to that. So why is that important? Because the hook for this lawsuit filed by the Department of Justice is that federal programs are being improperly interfered with at the state level and the federal government reigns supreme in that area because you're not letting the federal government, Texas, properly 
uh, do Medicaid and Medicare, which provides for pregnancy and abortion services. There's things related to refugee resettlement that goes to medicine, that goes to uh, medical care that's allowed, the Department of Defense and what's allowed there. And so they're, they're basically saying commerce clause, all of these things touch commerce because all the Texas women are now going out of the state to try to find abortions in, in the sister states. So that gives a federal a priority or federal prerogative. You can't as a state, it's the foundation of our federal system. You as a state can't interfere with the operation of the federal government ever, ever. So you're going, so the supremacy clause is going to be implicated. And then you've got the protection of the fundamental constitutional rights embodied by the three precedents that you and I have talked about, which are being in un, improperly interfered with, with an obstacle to the exercise of constitutional rights by Texas women. He, he pulled it all together in a really eloquent 25 or 30 page, relatively short complaint, which gets right to the heart of the matter, like a knife, like boom, with the case law and the support. And, and if they're going to say, well, we didn't do it. Well, you did do it, state of Texas, because not only are you empowering um, civilians to get bounties by bringing civil suits, but you're also in the in the um, this nefarious elements of the SB8 say the following. Certain people don't have standing in a court of law, including in federal court to raise constitutional issues. Think about that. A state is telling someone they they are barred from the federal courthouse to argue about the constitutionality of the thing that they are victimized by. That is unconstitutional. And that's also baked into this lawsuit. Yeah, it's really a brilliant. Allowed. It's really a brilliant argument, too, that in yeah. addition to regardless of where you stand on the issue and hopefully you don't stand on the issue of supporting a country that looks like the handmaid's tale and you are on the right to choice. But you don't even have to get there. That's the genius of this complaint, that you've basically removed federal courts from issues that touch upon federal law, which is another way to attack this Popak. Talk briefly about Tennessee, and then I want to go on to yeah. speak a little bit about um, your state of Florida. OK. And then just lastly, on, on Texas, just so we do our lessons for legal AF law school, the supremacy clause of the U.S. Constitution, Article six, clause two, is 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 very simple and powerful. The Constitution shall be the supreme law of the land, period and stop. And that's what this case is about. Do we live in a federal democracy or do we not? Are we a confederation of states like back in the 1800s? We are not. And so the quicker this gets up through the appellate courts in Texas to the U.S. Supreme Court for full briefing, the better. And hopefully on an emergency application that is this time granted so that women in Texas aren't denied the ability to have an abortion for a year or more while the Supreme Court gets around to a full briefing. And then Tennessee, just this is not the only place where abortion is being considered. We've got the Mississippi case that the Supreme Court is going to do in October. We've got the Texas case. We've got South Dakota issuing all sorts of bans you and I will talk about against telemedicine and telehealth and Plan B medicine. And now Tennessee, thank God, the Sixth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeal that that governs Tennessee has ruled that Tennessee's 
heart, uh, heartbeat law, fetal heartbeat law to try to ban abortion is unconstitutional because it is an improper barrier and obstacle to a woman's constitutional right to end her pregnancy prior to viability, period, end stop. So that case is going to parallel up and probably join with the cases that are already sitting at the U.S. Supreme Court on this very, uh, very important issue. Popak. Popak. <laughs> if you say three Popaks, it's like Beetlejuice. I was, just, I, I was expecting like a what Popak. What I was going to say <laughs> is that you're a genius. Popak. I really think your breakdowns are genius. And before speaking about Governor DeSantis, I want to talk about policy genius. Uh, if someone relies on your financial support, whether it's a child, an aging parent, or even a business partner, you need life insurance. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. Why compare? You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. You could save $1,300 or more per year on life insurance by using Policy Genius to compare policies. The licensed experts at Policy Genius work for you, not the insurance company, so you can trust them to help you navigate every step of the shopping and buying process. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius thousands of five-star reviews across Trustpilot and Google. And eligible applicants can get covered in as little as a week thanks to an award-winning policy option that swaps the standard medical exam requirement for a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes advisor, higher than options from Ladder, Ethos, Bestow. And let me tell you how it works. Getting started is easy. First, head to policygenius.com. That's policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. When you're ready to apply, the Policy Genius team will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. That is policygenius.com. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And it's nice to have sponsors, Popak, who share the Popakian genius, like Policy Genius. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to talk now. That was, by the way, that was Elegant and eloquent, that transition. <laughs> I appreciate it. I want to go now, Popak, though, to the laws enacted in Florida, the law enacted in Florida that seem to criminalize the peaceful protests that were taking place in Florida. This was a law that Governor Death Santis um, uh, championed. Uh, in Florida. 
I want to be very careful with language because language is very important here. And the headlines have read the following. Florida's anti-riot bill was ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge on Thursday. Right, Popak, that framing of this as an anti-riot bill. Nobody, it, nobody likes riots. And so you would go, why would they declare an anti-riot bill unconstitutional? Because it wasn't an anti-riot bill. It was an anti-black and brown people bill and an anti-peaceful protester bill in the wake of the protests post-George Floyd. Uh, what that's what Governor DeSantis wanted to do was basically arrest everybody and basically try to exercise powers, dictatorial style powers, and arrest people for associating in the protest, associating within a large group of people. And so, look, what this law in its current form, Popak, you and me say, look, if someone is violent, at a protest, if someone destroys property at a protest, um, that person should be held accountable. There's laws already on the books to handle that. Correct. And with this law, because it was written in a vague and ambiguous way, intentionally, the broad sweep of the law was if you were at that protest where somebody did that because that person did that, or because the government believed that somebody may, may be wanting to do that by your mere presence peacefully at the protest, you could be arrested and charged under this riot bill. Or as the ju as the judge here, and I want to talk about the judge in a really eloquent to continue the word of the day opinion, 90 page opinion written by uh, Mark Walker, a federal judge up in um, Pinellas. Uh, up in um, Tallahassee, federal northern district of Florida, he said his example was, so you attend a peaceful protest against fill in the blank. This happened to be BLM, but it could have been anything. Um, and, and he actually started his opinion by talking about Rosa Parks and the Tallahassee bus boycotts that went parallel to Rosa Parks in the 1950s and what that meant to the city and race relations which was an, a really an amazing way to kick off the entire opinion. But his, his example was you go to a peaceful protest, some people in it turn a little bit violent, tear or, or not, the police react or overreact and use tear gas. You're wiping your eyes with, from the tear gas and you help your fellow neighbor protester and hand that person a bottle of water to pour into their eyes. You've committed a crime in under this bill in Florida, under this act, this law in Florida. But let me back up and let, let's because our people, our people that follow us, I think, like this kind of stuff. Mark Walker, chief judge, Northern District of Florida, appointed by Obama. That's the judge that they pulled on this case. And in the very first paragraph, almost the first sentence of a 90 page decision, was a recitation of Rosa Parks and the Tallahassee bus boycotts. And what would have happened to those people had this law been on the books? So if you're the government, if you're Florida, 
you're, you got to be slapping your forehead at this point when you open up that opinion, because if that's how it's starting, you know, it's not going to end well for you. And in a very detailed, precise analysis un, under the injunction standard, which you and I have talked about in the past, because this was brought up on an injunction to enjoin the act, to stop the act from being or the law from being enforced against people. So there's four things that have to be proved for the injunction that you're going to prevail on the merits that there's or what we call a likelihood of success on the merits, that there's irreparable harm, that there's an inadequate remedy uh, at law and that the and that the policy um, issues tip in your favor, public policy issues tip in your favor. And the judge went through and analyzed all this and looked at what DeSantis's people and DeSantis had submitted in opposition. And what they said was, and it got very, very detailed. I don't know if you saw it in the opinion. There's actually a sentence diagram submitted by both sides. Just to show you what you said earlier about grammar matters, periods and commas and punctuation matter. Both sides submitted to the judge and they were reprinted in his order, competing sentence diagrams of the four lines of the statute and what they mean or what they could mean. The plaintiffs who were basically... Um, NAACP and other and other organizations were arguing that this was so vague that it was constitutionally vague and infirm. And under their First Amendment right, not just of speech, but of peaceable assembly, to which is a right under the Constitution, it's in the very First Amendment of the Constitution that you have the right to protest, you have the right to free speech, you have the right to assemble with your fellow protesters. That's the reason we left England. Number one, First Amendment, okay, that that has been violated and that it, it has had what's called in the constitutional analysis doctrine. It had a chilling effect on their continued political speech. And the judge cited, for instance, that this organization had submitted these organizations had submitted affidavits that said because the law was on the books, they were no longer organizing peaceful protests. They were no longer going into the street to communicate their message on the on the at the public square. And you know what DeSantis's response was in his papers? Oh, I went on his face. I went on their Facebook pages. They're still doing some things. And look, they're celebrating Juneteenth. And here's a banner which the judge shoved right up to Santos's backside, a banner of children at a picnic celebrating the upcoming first celebration of the federal holiday of Juneteenth and the end of slavery. And the judge slapped his own forehead and said, really? You're using the celebration of Juneteenth to say that your statute is not having a chilling effect on BLM protests that are lawful? No. So the judge believes that at the end of the day, the statute is not going to, even through full trial, is not going to pass constitutional mustard under the First Amendment. And he has enjoined it from being used, which means lawful protesters can now go on the street. And it also means to pick up your point, Ben, the people that mix in within the BLM movement or other peaceful protests for other reasons, whether it be COVID or or you name it, people can protest anything. Afghanistan, it's all lawful under the First Amendment. But if people mix in there to try to do to to do mischief, to vandalize, 
those people should be pulled out and prosecuted separately because they're not lawful protesters. I'll give you an example. I, I stayed in New York. I, I live in New York. I lived in New York during the BLM protests and the unlawful looting that happened behind the scenes with the BLM movement as a cover. Those criminals who decided to break into Gucci and Louis Vuitton and Rolex because the police were overwhelmed uh, with with uh, with the protesters and were caught flat footed. And that allowed looting to happen, much like the early uh, 1970s during the blackout here. Those people should be caught and um, prosecuted. That's not peaceful assembly. That's not First Amendment. You don't have a First Amendment right to steal somebody's Rolex out of the window. But there's laws on the books for that. And everything else should be aired on the side of allowing First Amendment expression and allowing peaceable assembly. And this law is anti-protest. It's not anti-riot. To use your to use your phrase, it, it would be like in the 1960s, the headline would read, I guess, based on DeSantis, the headline would read protesters improperly interfere with water cannons being fired at them in Mississippi and Alabama causing property damage. Is that what happened? Or were there protesters who were improperly beaten and fought and had fire hoses fired at them during during the uh, the uh, Jim Crow response to racial uh, protests? You're absolutely right there, Popak. And the uh, the you know, the the scary thing is, though, for Governor Death Santis, when he was responding to the judge's inquiries and talking about how he would use the law and giving a Juneteenth celebration as an example, at the very least, he was telling you what he wanted to use it for. I mean, in the sense of that's what's really scary there is that that's exactly how the law was going to be used. If there was a group of peaceful protesters and he didn't like their method of protest or just didn't like the group of people who were peacefully protesting, that group would fall under the broad reach of this statute because the law so was, as it was framed, was so all encompassing. Um, there there was, just before you move on, there, there already is or was, and the judge spent a lot of time uh, analyzing this, there already is a riot definition on the books in Florida, which defines a riot as three or more people with common intent in a violent manner to the terror of the people and they breach the peace. That is lawful, probably under I mean, it hasn't really been challenged. It's probably lawful under the First Amendment. But this new thing of willful participation in disorderly conduct, which is what the Florida legislature put on the books for DeSantis, is vague and, and constitutionally infirmed and should be ripped off the books of Florida. Those were your updates, updates, updates. Popak, I want to close out the show. Maybe close out the show. Maybe not close out the wait, show. Wait. Probably close out the show. <laughs> put it to our put it to our our, our Saturday night uh, watchers. I want to talk Popak about the recent lawsuit that was filed um, in New York against uh, Prince Andrew. Um, the lawsuit alleges that uh, Prince Andrew sexually assaulted Virginia Gaffari when she was 17 years old. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing her 
last name, but this is the allegation in connection um, with Jeffrey Epstein um, uh, in connection with his relationship with Prince Andrew, but that Prince Andrew sexually assaulted Virginia Giffery. And what I want to talk about here, Popak is, um, you know, obviously the allegations here are incredibly um, serious. Um, we're going to follow what happens in this case, but I think it's worth, as we've talked about a lot of heavy political topics, you know, to touch upon just one other area of the law here, because it's a good, I think, teaching point of a lot of things that are going on. Learning about the statute of limitations, because the conduct took place a long time ago, which was often a very frequent bar that prevented victims of sexual assault. So how was this case able to be filed in the first place? It also touches upon issues of service. Literally, how do you initiate a lawsuit? You have to take a document and you have to serve somebody with a summons that tells them they have to show up in court. There's a summons, there's a complaint. The summons says you got to show up. The complaint tells you what you're suing, what you're being sued for. But how do you serve somebody like Prince Andrew, who's one, a prince, but two, is in a foreign um, country? And what does service there look like? And I think we begin, Popak, though, by talking about um, child victims acts that are being passed in New York, that are being passed across the country, that are extending the statutes of limitations for victims of sexual assault. The Child Victims Act of 2019, which was signed into effect by Governor Cuomo in New York, changed the statute of limitations for suing in sexual assault related crimes um, raising the age to 55 from 23 if someone was sexually abused as a minor under the age of 18. And in New York, it was also, they added this other uh, effect that doesn't really take place or this other element that doesn't take place really in, in many other states that I've seen, but it created a temporary period. I think it was a year, but it was extended during COVID POPOC in which people who were older than 55 could also sue for childhood, could sue for childhood abuse. As soon as uh, the Child Victims Act was passed, I think in New York alone, there was about 9,000 or so kind of new cases that were filed um, for cases that were previously barred by individuals who were sexually abused or assaulted as minors who couldn't sue because they, they were no longer 23, but who now were between the ages of 23 and 55. And for those over 55 for that one year period, Popak, you live in New York. I mean, th these laws are, we're seeing these laws in states across the country, but what can you tell us more and, and maybe touch upon the service issue? Yeah, great. Thank you, Ben. So, yeah, it's one of the good things that, that uh, Governor Cuomo did. Um, he passed the Child Victims Act. And, um, you know, it, it did a few things. It took a statute of limitations that had been relatively short and it extended it almost unlimitedly, meaning if you were a victim of a sex crime at any time in your life, um, even if the statute of limitations on the books at the time had already run, they lifted the statute of limitations, allowing you up to the age of 55 to file the suit. And then there was a last, as you mentioned, a last window of one year 
which ultimately closed on August the 14th of this past year. On August 9th, five days earlier, Virginia Joffrey files the suit claiming as part of the Jeffrey Epstein uh, deep, dark uh, conspiracy world of sexual predators and Giselaine Maxwell, who is his longtime friend and, and basically his pimp, that one of the underage women who was trafficked and brought into prostitution through Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine was um, Virginia. And when she was when she was in her teens and living in Palm Beach, Florida, now she's in her 40s and she would she would have been barred for bringing the suit, but for the Child's Victim Act. And one of the people that she says, you know, we know what happened to Jeffrey Epstein, um, but one of the people that she says she was pimped out to was Prince Andrew, who was, you know, the the second child, the second male child of the Queen of England. And that on three or four occasions, she alleges Prince Andrew raped her. And that had been sort of and I know you heard it, too, Ben, that had been circulating the whole Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew child prostitution issue have been circulating for a number of years. There's been Netflix documentaries on this, including one that came out last year. Other people like Harvard law professors have been <laughs> accused also by her of being involved in this. Former presidents have been accused of being involved with it. But she hired a very good lawyer. She hired David Boyce. David Boyce had a problem, as you and I sometimes do. He had a lawsuit. He had a statute of limitations and he had to get it served. And in the States, if somebody's hiding in the United States, there's ways to do what we call substitute service of process. You can leave it with somebody who's in their house. Depending upon the statute, you can nail it to the front door. You can serve the secretary of state of that particular state if the statute allows that. Overseas, it's harder. And overseas behind royal protection and Windsor Castle, it's, it's, it's even harder. And there's two or three fundamental ways to do that. There are treaties between countries that allow for intercountry service of process. One of them is referred to as the Hague Convention because it was signed. It was signed at the Hague, and it's really hard to do the Hague Convention to get service. You can do it. It takes like a year. You got to hire somebody over there, a lawyer over there. You got to hire a service process server over there, and you got to do exactly what that country requires in terms of service of process, including personal service in this case. Or, or whatever the country requires. So how did they get service on, on uh, Prince Andrew? Because he's been, according to the lawyers, been dodging service and hasn't been seen in public in months. They found out in doing their research that under even the law of England and Wales, which is what governs the UK, that you're allowed to do substitute service by serving somebody of a suitable age, if you will, as opposed to the person themselves. So they sue, they served the Royal Guard standing at Windsor with the papers. I think that's going to be effective and proper service. And this lawsuit's up and running, which means this prince, I don't know if he's going to have sovereign immunity. You and I need to look at this. I don't think he's going to have sovereign immunity to raping a girl. I think he's going to have to stand and answer in a federal court here in New York about what, what, what claims to have happened. She thinks... He he thinks that it, uh, he claims that I've seen the the, the um, interviews. I I don't even remember the girl. That's my plummy British accent, royal accent thing. 
she supposedly has hard evidence, documented evidence, maybe photographs. And there are photographs with her and him, with him, with him, with his arm around her, with 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 her on his lap. I've seen the photos. So he's going to have a hard time saying, I don't remember the girl. And then it's going to be up to a jury ultimately to decide whether she's telling the truth or he is. But this royal has just got dragged into court in New York federal. And uh, Popak, a, one of the things that may be claimed and will uh, follow it, in addition to the issue of sovereign immunity, is also uh, diplomatic immunity. Um, I assume, Popak, I, I think that it would not prevail given the types of allegations yeah. here would be outside the course and scope of what a diplomat would do, but it doesn't mean but that. But is he a, a diplomat? diplomat? That's a good question. Is a royal a diplomat? You know, it's, you know, one a royal can appoint themselves as a diplomat, and I'll just share one <laughs> brief war story for you. Um, I was once in a case with somebody who was living in America, but was in a royal family um, abroad. There was a, a civil litigation that uh, was taking place. We were about one day from taking the deposition of the particular individual. And then they got the family to appoint the, this individual as a diplomat, which is basically going to the State Department and just putting you on the list of people who are diplomats. And so as we're walking in with our binders to take the deposition, they assert diplomatic immunity, you know, and I was thinking, no way, we're going and challenging this. And, you know, the the court said, he's a diplomat, nothing I can do um, in that case. And so it's a personal case. And Popak, going back to the um, uh, Child Victims Act that we just spoke, it's worth noting to our listeners, that statute of limitations date's important. It's important in your own state. You may have just heard what Popak and I said and you may realize that you or someone that you love or know or a friend or someone has a case who never thought they had a case. Um, these are the types of cases that Popak and I handle. And if you have a case where you or someone you know was a victim of sexual assault, um, regardless of the years, although we have to be very focused on statutes of limitations, but especially as a minor, um, there are ways now in many situations for statute of limitations to be open depending on the age. Um, these are the types of cases Popak and I handle. And so if this has happened, Popak and I, one thing people know who send us emails is we do try to respond as much as we can. It's harder to respond to passing commentary, but we do our best. But if it's, and we get a lot of those, but if you have a case like that, reach out to us. My email is ben at MidasTouch.com. That's ben at MidasTouch.com, M-E-I-D-A-S-T-O-U-C-H. And Popak's email is mpopak, M-P-O-P-O-K, at zplaw.com. That's mpopak at zplaw.com. And if you or anyone you know has been injured or, or harmed in any serious situation, whether it's the type of situations we discussed or other disputes or other accidents or incidents, reach out to us. Popak and I are practicing lawyers. We do this podcast on the weekend. We love to share our knowledge with you, um, but we're practicing and we're courtrooms every day. And we try to give you that perspective of being a real life lawyer. And we try to look at these lenses through 
We try to speak with you on this podcast as though you were in our office um, or you are a friend, but we try to break it down for you in that way. Popak, um, a great episode today. I didn't want you to show what you had in your hand, but I'm okay with you showing it now. You want to pull up the, uh, you want to pull up the, what you were going to show? Want, am I going to turn it around? I'm okay. You can turn it around now. Okay. So because what we, we got an a hour little 30, we got a, uh, well, sort no, no, an hour, well, 13, I can't see an, hour thir- an hour 13, an hour and 13 minutes. So what I was, so Popak wanted to show all of y'all and he was going to get a yellow card. I'll just give him a yellow card before we close. So he gets his <laughs> second yellow card of the day. But Popak was going to show that we were being very good with the time because our last episode was like two hours and everyone stuck with it. And in fact, loved the last one, but the suits at Midas Touch. <laughs> Wait, I, I, I totally agree. I, you know that in the Popakian, this is how you invented it, the Popakian world, I like discipline and I like organization and having things done on time. And we got a little sloppy last episode, but we did a half an hour about SB8 in Texas and what I thought was important. But the weird thing is, and we all agreed it was Saturday night and it was going like really long. But then when the final numbers came in for people that watched and viewed and listened to the podcast, we actually beat on Facebook by a lot the prior episode that was on time. So I can't figure it out. I think I think here's what I here's what I have learned. The Midas Mighty and those that enjoy you and I talking about important legal political issues on a weekly basis will go through firewalls for us uh, and stay with us because they find it interesting. And, and I I get up every Saturday and you and I start talking about this during the week, really excited because, A, I get to spend time with you, which, you know, I enjoy B, it makes me really during the week and otherwise drill down on important legal issues so that they're at the tip of my tongue and the top of my head. And and C, we have a really enthusiastic audience of listeners that makes you and I strive to do this show the best that we can possibly do it every week, day in and day out. Make sure you tell your friends, family, if they're not Popokians, if they're not legal AFers. I know the Mycelliusins, you know, we're we're doing our best to get into that pantheon of Popokianness, but we will get there. But tell them to take a listen to Legal AF. Keep and us- merch. And we have oh. T-shirts finally. With yeah, logos. So there was a big debate over the shirts, legal AF merch. And now it doesn't just say legal analysis, friends. The merch says legal AF podcast. So we're 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 getting there. Maybe in the future, it'll just say legal AF. We'll see. But I've had a great time with you today, Popak. Great breaking down all of those issues. Um, again, you know, as we close on September 11th, We do want to reflect on that day, make sure we never forget um, so many lives that were lost, um, so heartbreaking, um, and our hearts just go out with any of the family members too on this day, and and of course to everyone who who lost their lives on that day. Popak, any final concluding thoughts? No, I want to leave it on that. That was a very poignant moment, so well said. You got Popak, you got Popokian, you got Ben Micellis. We appreciate you as always. The Midas Mighty remains undefeated. We will see you next time. If it's Saturday, it's Legal AF Live. If it's Sunday, it is Legal AF. We'll see you next week. Legal AF.